Hi, I'm Michael Lee with the Pragmatic Institute, and I'm joined today by David Linthicum, who's the Chief Cloud Strategy Officer at Deloitte Consulting. And we're very excited about cloud and data, and so I'm very excited to be talking with David. How are you doing, David? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. So I just want to start out with a brief, uh, a short story you have comparing two recent purchases you made. Do you want to share that with the audience? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, really uh, Tesla versus, you know, kind of buying a Ford F-150 um, and kind of their very similar in terms of their popularity. I mean, the Ford F-150 is probably the one of the most popular vehicles of all time. And if you've ever owned a truck, they're kind of like the Swiss army knives of vehicles. You can use them for anything and everything that go off road. You can hire call lumber, things like that. There's nothing like it. Um, however, you know, the new technology that's out there and certainly with the electric car vehicles is also compelling. And, and there's a good reason to start moving off in that direction as well not to mention 450 horsepower and uh, zero to 60 in 2.2 seconds, which is, which is unheard of. But mm -hmm. not gonna compare and contrast uh, uh, the two different automobiles, but it's just kind of the buying experience. And so what I noticed, because I was doing it at the same time, that when you buy a Tesla, it's a completely automated process that occurs online. You can't really go into a dealership and buy a Tesla, they're going to send you to the uh, kiosk uh, to do it. You might as well do mm -hmm. it at home. And your ability to configure a car and build a car and define what your car is going to be, you know, typically that's not unique to Tesla, but they have the capability of doing that. But what was unique was the fact that I configured and purchased both cars online and the experiences I thought were fairly uh, equal. But kind of that's where the similarities ended. And so found out that, um, you know, Tesla could track the car through its manufacturing. They reported to me where it was, when it was going to be built, the different logistic systems that were brought into play in terms of bringing the parts for the car, pictures of the car in production. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it was really it was really kind of a nice experience. And most importantly, when the thing was going to be delivered, when it was on the delivery truck, when it was going to arrive uh, at the dealership. Uh, email sent, including uh, invites uh, to invite me to go pick up the car, uh, and also, you know, capabilities and understanding of the car, scheduling classes so I could learn about the capabilities of the car, you know, scheduling the first mm -hmm. service, which was all automated. I mean, not that I dislike humans, but the fact of the matter is, is I really had no ambiguity in terms of what I needed to do to own the car. The mm -hmm. experience really kind of set. Where, um, and not necessarily picking on Ford, but the, the other experiences was a little different. The fact that they really couldn't tell me when the car was going to show, gonna show up. <laughs> um, it gave me a typically month to two month time frame. Um, had to, in essence, uh, you know, sit on my hands until I got a call from the dealership to come pick up the car. <laughs> I had no visibility into how it was being produced, no visibility into who was producing it, no visibility into issues that came up. Uh, for example, um, you know, at the time they couldn't uh, deliver the car because they couldn't get cameras out of China that they needed to for the front-facing cameras. Well, I didn't know that. I had to figure that out by, you know, going to different forums and groups and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so, and I thought about, you know, what's the difference between the two? And, you know, both big car companies, um, one's obviously new and startup, but one really kind of put an emphasis on innovation in terms of how we're going to deal with information and ways mm -hmm that are going to delight the client, in this case, I'm the client. And 
really, if you look at digital enablement, you know, it's the ability to turn companies in the ability in, in the ability to be a Tesla and not necessarily a Ford, even though mm -hmm. I'm sure Ford would like the capabilities of Tesla. And it may be some good technological reasons why they can't do it. Ultimately, we're entering a state where I need to have visibility into everything that occurs in my supply chain as I consume things. And my ability to do that is going to raise my satisfaction. The ability to raise my satisfaction is going to provide the ability to, um, to basically maintain and enhance a business. So if you look at, I mean, I wrote an article a while ago called The Brand Apocalypse, where I was just talking about all the brand brands that are just kind of going away out there. I mean, they're fairly famous on the retail side, but we're seeing insurance industries being disrupted mm -hmm. and manufacturing industries being disrupted. And if you look at one of the reasons they're being disrupted is because they really can't keep up with the use of data and the digital enablement effectively mm. uh, to provide the customers with the experience that they're seeking. And so you and I as a consumer are going to seek the experience where we're informed, where we're part of the process, where we have complete control of what's going on uh, through every part of the process. And it's never going to be a disappointment in mm. terms of what our expectations are and, and as well as the ability for the you know, manufacturing, service provider, whatever, you know, to kind of provide us with a deep link in terms of their core processing and what our expectations are and the ability to learn through that interaction mm -hmm. over time. And I just see this as a fundamental way that organizations are going to have to grow their business. And so, I've, you know, pick on the automobile manufacturers, but, you know, whether it's health insurance, which, you know, I also bought recently, or whether it's, uh, you know, retail experiences, whether it's uh, the ability to, um, you know, go in and get any kind of a service, you know, mm -hmm. the, the patterns are basically the same. The people who use data as the force multiplier to provide their customers with a better experience are the ones that are ultimately winning the game. And we're seeing that over and over in the, uh, in the, in the industry right now. So I love what you're, you're saying, because both manufacturers are able to really produce a car and a high quality car. But it's really that um, visibility that the data is providing that gives the kind of extra uh, oomph, if you will, that makes Tesla's experience that much better as a consumer, right? Yeah, and the, and the, the data is always there. In other words, it's mm -hmm. not that we can't find the data, we could acquire mm -hmm. the data if we wanted to. Uh, just for some reason, there's an inability to leverage the data mm -hmm. in some sort of a way to delight the customer. And it's really kind of an innovative thinking or perhaps a lack of an innovative thinking that is going on with some of these older companies in terms of rethinking how their processes are really kind of put together and how they're going to retool themselves mm. to get into a digital enabled state to get to a data driven state where they're able to take their, their businesses to the next level. And I, I truly think we're going to have a massive extinction of brands, um, that not necessarily are going to go bankrupt, but just, you know, fall by the wayside, get secured by other competitors mm -hmm. that are being disrupted in the space, typically by new entrants, by small to mid-level companies, mid-sized level companies, or even uh, companies that kind of get it, you know, they become understanding how the technology enabled needs to occur and end up owning the space. And mm -hmm. the, the thing is, the expectations are changing and also the ability to leverage information and data as not only a way to delight the customers, but a way to reduce prices and a way to uh, increase efficiency of the service. And all those things are starting to appear today. I and mean, we have the normal um, example of, you know, Netflix versus Blockbuster, or the, mm -hmm. you know, the New York Taxi Commission versus uh, Uber. 
Um, but they're getting into some major industries right now that are basically following the similar patterns. It's not as obvious. Uh, mm -hmm. Health insurance, for example. Um, while well, the big retailers and the big online retailers are going to start moving into that business, that was almost considered uh, untouchable and something you probably couldn't do and make successful of. But the reality is it can be automated and can be managed in terms of the risk analytics and risk is everything in health insurance or life mm -hmm. insurance or any insurance business. And the ability to determine that in such a way that it's so accurate that I'm able to give you an exact price that's able to reduce the amount you're going to have to pay for the insurance is going to make you more is going to make uh, me you a lot more attractive to me as a consumer of those mm -hmm. systems. But more importantly, also the ability to have a relationship with your insurance company so they can do things like increasing insurance on demand based on changes in life based on and providing, um, mm -hmm. you know, not only, uh, you know, wellness capabilities to ensure that we don't have a heart attack or have some sort of a sickness event, and which basically reduces their payouts as well, mm -hmm. you know, and do so in such a way that it's measurable in terms of how the benefits are. It's not just, you know, some sort of a PR move. Mm -hmm. And we're heading to that direction. We're going to be tightly mm -hmm. coupled with the businesses that we leverage. And we're going to expect a symbiotic relationship um, where we're going to provide, where we're going to get a more more of a benefit than they are, mm. and this is going to be the way of the future. And I, I just think that the businesses don't don't get it now and aren't retooling now are going to be in deep trouble in a few years. And mm. really, it comes down to your ability to leverage information, leverage uh, processes as as a force multiplier, and yeah. technology out there in ways that you know we haven't heard of. I mean the use of machine learning based systems that I've you know been building over the last five years and I started my career in artificially intelligent based systems is just incredible the amount that we can learn from the information that's been available forever that hasn't been used so people can use it to predict do predictive analytics and do predictive maintenance systems and do things that we've always had the ability to do um, but never had you know, the, the technology then that was just too pricey and different and mm. wasn't accessible. Yep. You know, now it's there. Machine learning based systems on cloud based systems, you know, cost $5 to set up and it may cost mm. another $10 for the, for the database storage on a monthly basis. Well, yeah. if you're able to um, leverage that information to reduce uh, accidents among the drivers of your automobiles because you're able to gather information over time to discern better ways to engineer the systems, you know, where you're managing to save a hundred lives a month. I mean, that's a possibility. I've seen those things. Then you're getting at a level of service that's beyond what we expect as consumers. And also you're doing the right thing and the moral mm -hmm. thing. And, and we're just at the crossroads right now where I just don't get why people aren't just running up and down the streets you know, making use of this technology, you know, based on all the goodness it's able to bring. Yeah. And we're so let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, what do you think are the three main obstacles to enterprises embracing, let's say traditional enterprises, embracing data-driven products? Yeah, I think the big one is the obvious one. It's talent. Um, sorry about wait. that. Okay. Why don't you start again? I'm sorry. That's all right. I think the big one is, uh, is talent. We just don't have people within the organizations that have the vision and understanding how the technology works. And so we're at a crisis right now. We don't have enough um, people who are trained in IT skills, such as data scientists. I mean, we're, 
lacking data scientists. We, you know, we should be able to clone those people at this point. Uh, AI mm -hmm. uh, knowledge engineers uh, and the ability to and data analytics specialists and you know to figure out how the information can be leveraged. Um, we've created uh, um, roles in organizations such as the chief data data officer and chief mm -hmm. information officer. Uh, to basically look at how the information can be leveraged in certain ways. But for the most part, um, enterprises think in operational states. I mean, if you're a big mm -hmm. publicly traded company, you're trying to do quarter on quarter growth, you're trying mm -hmm. to stay alive in the budgets that you have, and looking at ways to improve the system really kind of takes a back burner. And I don't know, you'll see, you know, lots of efforts within these organizations to get some of these pilot projects up and running, but they have a tendency to fall by the wayside as soon as they need to cut a budget. Mm -hmm. And it's not looked look, st look strategically at the organization where the startups and some of the restartups and some of the mid-sized businesses out there, they basically build their business around that technology. Uh, yeah. And it becomes kind of core to everything that they do. And it's just a way, a cultural change, a way of thinking. Uh, but the big one is you, they just really don't have the people around who understand how that's how to make that happen. So, you know, we have a program where we train PhDs, become data scientists, and they get hired at places like uh, uh, Yelp or uh, maybe a large insurer like AIG. Um, I'm, but I'm always sort of struck by how much more difficult it is for a large company to kind of assimilate that talent and put new talents, this kind of data science talent into their flows. What do you think is the blocker there? Yeah, it's one thing to have the talent available. It's another thing to utilize the talent. Um, I find that um, if I'm hired as a CTO or I'm hired as someone who's really kind of as a change officer within these organizations, and I've had a career where I've been a CTO five different times for different publicly traded companies, um, I have to demand that I control budgets and be able to fire people to make the changes we need to make in the amount of time that we need to make them. That sounds kind of tyrannical, but the reality is I have to force change in a very short period of time because the company typically is in need of deep repairs. And that's the only way to do it within the culture that I got into. Mm -hmm. So they put these very talented, very um, almost elite people within these organizations and they don't necessarily empower them to make the changes they need to make. And so mm -hmm. they typically work for politicians within the organizations, whether it's a CIO or, you know, director of something who are very astute at getting their career ahead in the organization that they're in, but not necessarily astute at getting things done. Mm -hmm. And so they don't look, they're not enabling these folks to do their jobs. And so a lot of people, you know, I, I deal with people all the time where they, they just leave the organization because they felt they weren't able to be impactful and mm -hmm. they just didn't have, and to their, to the defend the company, the folks who have the um, uh, very deep technology degrees typically don't have the chops to do the, play the political games within the organization to make uh, something occur. Mm -hmm. And, and they're, you know, where they're, if they got those skills, then they should be able to ena enable some change but also the folks in the organization aren't leveraging them. So that's being the big hindrance here. We are seeing organizations that are restructuring and becoming more flat and mm -hmm. empowering um, the uh, technologists within the organization. It's kind of like a DevOps cultural change that's going mm -hmm. on where people are providing the core processing, pushing that down to the folks and directly to the people who can, who can affect change. 
Mm-hmm. They're going to be the data scientists and the developers and the cloud engineers and the architects and things like that. So we're moving a lot of layers between them and their ability to do their job. But those are typically few and far between. It's almost experimental when I see it mm-hmm. within these organizations. But my advice is that we're going to have to move into these sorts of things where hierarchies are you know, a, a thing of the past. Um, we're going to have to deal with very flat organizations. Uh, there's not going to be a power structure anymore. There's mm-hmm. going to be a, um, you know, basically a, you know, coalition of folks that are, you know, trying to do the thing, combine good to make things happen. And ultimately looking for, you know, looking at the, the success of the company, not necessarily their success. Mm-hmm. That's a big cultural change. We don't do that in the U.S. And cultural changes are tough. How, if I'm a large institution, been around the block for a while, how do I summon the courage to move forward into this flat data-driven culture? Well, a, a big motivator is you know, we're going to be bankrupt in three years because our <laughs> market's going away. Uh, if they do see that, uh, then that's going to be the motivator in making things happen. Uh, and then you have to get a uh, new management team and some and, uh, empowerment from the top from the board of directors and investors on down uh, that you're going to make these changes. And then you have to get some large change agents in the organization to actually affect the cultural things. Um, times I did take over as a CTO or had affect a cultural shift, uh, I couldn't do that myself. And so I had to you know, hire a dozen people who really kind of got the culture of what needed to be changed. Mm. And those were change agents under themselves. And so they had the respect and the admiration of people who work for them as well as, uh, you know, as, well as the uh, authority they needed to go uh, you know, make things happen. And it was their objective to change the culture over time. And it was an MBO kind of thing. They had to affect the change in the certain Mm. microcosm, you know, say 200 people, R&D teams, data teams, things like that. And there was really no choice. They had to go get that done. Of course, everybody wasn't successful. And sometimes the cultural cultural shifts had some large uh, issues, such as a lot of people leaving Mm -hmm. uh, or dissatisfied with their jobs or morale issues that occurred over time. Sometimes that can be fixed, sometimes it can't. But really, if you're looking at the success of the business, that's the imperative. And your ability to get a cultural shift in place that, by the way, is going to benefit folks in the organization because we're pushing empowerment down. We're not mm-hmm. pulling power empowerment away. We're not putting you know, three more layers of management, which is the way we've, we did it in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're doing is putting a functional organization and that we're going to have the ability to automate things that weren't automated before and your ability to be successful and your ability to, in essence, be re- have uh, your work directly reflected into the set success of what's going on that day. Mm. Developers and, we love building things. Yeah. Um, so how do we think about this culturally from the perspective of those who sort of were there in the legacy institution? right before you joined. Um, and how can you tell, are they obstinate to change? Are they just sort of taking a little bit of time to make, to get into the new mindset? Um, how do you think about, about you know, the legacy population, if you will? I, I think it used to be, you know, maybe 10 years ago um, that they were at a big company because they didn't want change. And so mm-hmm. they wanted something that was fairly static and they were okay with uh, maintaining the status quo. They may have had some passive aggressive tendencies because they didn't feel empowered to do their jobs correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically that was their focus. Um, what you have to do is kind of get to the essence of what they do. In other words, 
we're going to empower you to do your job where it's reflective into how it's going to increase the quality and value of the product every day. Not every month or every year, and we're not mm -hmm. going to do release changes or version changes going forward, but we're going to continuously improve the product. We're going to basically do that via your input, working and collaborating with the end users and the customers. And so mm -hmm. every day when you walk out of the building, something's going to be improved, something's going to be better. How do you feel about that? And these are questions I've asked a lot of people. If they said that's mm -hmm. exactly what I want, they get excited about it, they want the ability to you know, work on stuff and see the, uh, the outcome on a continuous basis. Or they may say, that sounds pretty scary. Uh, I feel like I'm being judged. Then um, that's not going to be the organization for them. Mm. And I'd probably argue that they're, we're going to have to change an attitude to have, you know, someplace to work um, mm -hmm. because the organizations are moving in that direction. So that's really comes down to it. And I, I found out that people that have been with an organization for a long period of time, they have this fire in the belly in them. And I've been mm -hmm. able to convert a lot of the traditional thinkers into moving to a more modern way of doing something where it is more interactive and collaboration and flat organizations just because they've never seen that work and they get excited about it you know, on mm -hmm. a daily basis. A certain amount of people are just going to fall by the wayside. Hiring new people, you basically hire people with those sorts of attitudes. Either they've had experience in working for small organizations, they're willing to bring that experience to them Mm -hmm. And they're willing to share their experiences and how things work. And the reality, if people complain about they don't like the organization, they don't like their boss, they don't like some process, well, change it. You know, guess what? We're continuously mm -hmm. improving everything, including uh, teamings of people and the ability to shift pods and different leaders and, you know, shift things around. If I had leaders within organizations, they never had a certain number of people that reported to them. You know, they worked within three or four different pods and had three or four different roles within those pods and leadership roles. Mm -hmm. And by the way, they weren't successful in the pods. People would vote with their feet and they would pods would shift out from under them mm -hmm. and move other under leader, uh, move on, move over to other leaders. And I think that's, uh, you know, kind of a better way to do that. And people mm -hmm. view that as unstructured and chaotic. It's absolutely opposite of being chaotic because we're putting measuring and metrics and tooling in place to make sure that we're capturing, you know, people that are doing their jobs effectively, specifically around the use of data and the innovative use of data. Mm. And, and the, what all, all we're changing is the ability for people to affect uh, change and providing them with a uh, hundred times more ability to do that on in a hundred times more faster basis. Uh, and is there anything that you specifically feel like you have to enable folks with, uh, let's say the folks who maybe have this fire in their belly, but don't quite know, know it yet. Is there like a message you give them? Are there tools or skills that you have to provide them to? Yeah, I give them. The, go ahead. Yeah, I give them the ability to learn. So, you know, training is always unlimited uh, to mm. a certain extent in organizations that I've led in the past. Uh, and certainly these days where, you know, training is on demand and cheap mm -hmm. that you can go learn all you can. And mm. so. It's up to you to learn, by the way, and you need to be a um, continuous learner as far as being also, you know, being good at your job. And so get into the, you know, providing the tools of the capability of the information they need to go and do it. Mm. You know, if they complain that they're, there's a, are, are, rec, are looking for training where something is spoon fed to them. You know, those are typically people I don't want working for me in any way, because guess what? I can train you in how to do a DevOps process or how to do some basic data science um, 
However, if you don't have the ability to continuously learn, you're going to be current for about six months. Mm-hmm. And your ability to look at the technology and get excited about it and figure out a training plan and how you need to move forward, you know, and I would say 10 to 20% of your time uh, it needs to be spent in training. Oh, wow. And you need to be constantly, you know, relearning what's going on and look, you know, affecting things that are going on. I mean, when I got involved with lynda.com and I have 32 videos out there on, you know, different cloud computing things and data science things, things like that. I initially got involved with that because I wanted to train people who were working for me. You know, mm-hmm. I couldn't meet with them all the time or, and give them the information that they needed. And the reality is I wanted the information there, but you've got to go download it and watch the course. I'm not checking to make sure you, you've gotten it. It's all MBO and your ability to do your job. Mm-hmm. And so people who want to form a, a quality career need to balance the training with the production with the learning and also some experimentation. And that's another job, you know, put a certain percentage of time to try new things and experiment, you know, and fail. I always ask people, you know, how many times you failed in the last year? It's a typical question, failure is good, Mm -hmm. those sorts of things. But if they get excited about a couple of things that they tried, it didn't quite work out, or they're gonna go back and give another try at some time, that's absolutely the perfect answer for those sorts of questions because they're not afraid to fail. And by the way, they're going to take a failure and try to turn it into a success with different ideas and different iterations of systems. Mm, That's very cool. And no, it's music to our ears. We do corporate training for data science. And we see every day that companies, even large enterprises, are looking to upskill their employees and get them uh, the training that they need to be successful in this new data-driven world. Uh, So finally, last question. Is knowledge data and is data knowledge? <laughs> wow. Um, absolutely knowledge is data uh, and data is knowledge. And I'll explain why. Um, when knowledge is basically the ability to look at massive amounts of information and the ability to discern patterns within information and the ability to deduce things that are occurring within those massive amounts of information. And so it does a couple of things. Number one, we can draw conclusions based on information that sits in a particular data store or a particular place. It could sit in a thousand different places. And the other thing, it allows us to, in essence, build knowledge bases out of the collection of information. And so we have this duality of information where it not only provides us the ability to come up with correct answers, but it becomes a teacher unto itself. I mean, us, us, you and I have cognitive capabilities that are basically formed, you know, through millions and millions of hours of interacting with our environment around us and gathering of information. We know the stove will burn us. We know don't run your car into a wall. You know, we know that mm-hmm. you're, you, know, you drive too fast all, and most of the time you're gonna get a speeding ticket. But also the ability to, in essence, draw a conclusion from massive amounts of information, which by the way, as humans, we don't really have the capability of doing. We have to rely on computers to do those things. So it's, it's kind of this duality of stuff. We are problem solvers into ourselves, able to discern information in terms of to solve issues. Mm-hmm. But we need to start learning how to build knowledge directly from these massive amounts of information and be smart in terms of leveraging these knowledge bases to come up with, uh, with new conclusions to new problems. And any advice for companies about how to best do that besides sort of the cultural aspects that we've been talking about earlier? 
Yeah, I think the big one is invest in technology and start experimenting now. I mean, it's so cheap to do so. I mean, mm -hmm. if you wanted to do a AI-based system or even you know some sort of a large data warehouse years ago, business analytics, it costs you a minimum $10 million of hardware and software and some sort of a power-sucking data center to make that mm -hmm. stuff happen. You know, now it's, it's a 15 bucks on a cloud-based system. And so there's no excuse for, and by the way, if you're a student or if you're using it just for training purposes, it's typically free. Mm -hmm. There's no reason we shouldn't going out, out there and start experimenting with different systems. I find myself getting lost on the weekends and, you know, AI cloud-based systems and, and massive amounts of data and mashing data up in different ways to determine different outcomes. And just by experimentation, there's no limits in terms of money. You know, why mm -hmm. are we going out and making this happen all the time? Mm -hmm. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, thank you so much, David. I really appreciate your joining me for this talk. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Take care.